This recording has been produced by Christchurch, Jerusalem. For more information, visit us at cmj-israel.org. Our worship continues with a public reading and study of the Word of God. So here are the lessons and scriptures appointed for this Sunday, fifth Sunday in Lent. The first reading from the prophet Ezekiel, chapter 37, beginning at verse 1. The hand of the Lord came upon me and brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley, and it was full of bones. And then he caused me to pass by them all around, and behold, there were very many in the open valley, and indeed, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? So I answered, O Lord God, you know. Again he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. And thus says the Lord God to these bones, Surely I will cause breath to enter into you, and you shall live. And I will put sinews on you, and bring flesh upon you, cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live. And you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a noise, and suddenly a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to bone. Indeed, as I looked, the sinews and the flesh came upon them, and the skin covered them over, but there was no breath in them. Also he said to me, Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe unto these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came into them. And they lived, and stood upon their feet, an exceedingly great army. And then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They indeed say, Our bones are dry, our hope is lost, and we ourselves are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and I'll bring you into the land of Israel. And then you shall know that I am the Lord when I've opened your graves. O oh, my people and brought you up from your graves. I will put my spirit in you and you shall live and I will place you in your own land. And then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it. Thus says the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second portion is from the epistles, Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 8, beginning with verse 6. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God nor indeed can be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. 
But you, not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please stand for the reading of the Gospel. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Messiah Jesus, according to the Apostle John, beginning at the first verse of the 11th chapter. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair. Therefore the sisters sent to him the Lord, saying, Lord, behold, he who you love is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Then after this he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you. And are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. These things he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. Then his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought he was speaking about taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. Then Thomas, who was called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days, that is, Lazarus. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away. And many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Now Martha, as soon as she had heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary was sitting in the house. Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. 
Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. And when she had said these things, she went her way and secretly called Mary, her sister, saying, The teacher has come and is calling for you. As soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the town, but was in the place where Martha had met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and comforting her, when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out, followed her, saying, She is going to the tomb to weep. Then, when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled, and he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. And then the Jews said, See how he loved him? And some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, again groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there's a stench. He's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me, and I know that you always hear me, but because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Now, when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Loose him and let him go. The word of the Lord. Let's pray before we uh, open the word of God. Father in heaven, we pray that uh, your word and your spirit will come upon us and upon all who are listening or watching. And we pray that uh, you will indeed be our teacher. We pray that uh, you'll bring us encouragement, that you'll bring us inspiration. We pray that uh, you'll enlighten us. And Father, we also pray that your spirit will challenge us and give us the grace to amend our lives and to live in such a way that pleases you and brings glory and honor to your name and to your kingdom. And we ask this in the power of the Spirit, in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. 
As mentioned earlier, we are in the um, fifth Sunday of Lent, and throughout the season of Lent, we have been uh, preaching from the text given to us by the lectionary, the Old Testament text. And for those of you who've been following along uh, in the sermon series, we started with um, Adam and Eve in the garden. We went to Abraham. From Abraham, we reminded ourselves of the, you might say, the ups and downs of the people of Israel in Sinai before they came into the promised land. And last week we spoke about the tragic story of uh, David and Saul and emphasized that uh, there was not just one tragic life, Saul, but uh, David had many tragedies as well. And our final Old Testament text before we come to Holy Week is Ezekiel's vision, the vision of the dry bones. Now these dry bones and the story of the dry bones, these are often uh, used at Easter, or at least the story is used at Easter, and it's a part of our uh, reading on Saturday night before Easter Sunday. And many uh, Christian preachers and uh, Bible commentators have taken the passage of the dry bones and God breathing life into those bones as a uh, foreshadowing of the resurrection or in some way to um, emphasize or to explain life after death. And I'd like to um, perhaps give a little wider and a bigger context to this incident that we find in Ezekiel 37. And I'd also like to raise the question is there something that we're missing in the story? Have we sold ourselves short? And with God's help, we will connect this with the incident of uh, Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Now, the story, book of Ezekiel is not an easy book to, to read. It's very difficult, and, uh, and throughout Christian history, we have often ignored this book, we uh, have uh, perhaps pushed this book aside, and that's because of the, the, the message itself can be, as I said, extremely difficult and certainly not politically correct in the day and age in which we live. In fact, the book is seemingly so harsh against the people of Israel that even the Jewish people themselves, for the longest time, could not decide should this be in the canon of Scripture. Should this be a canonical scripture? Is this something uh, inspired that God has, uh, has actually given to us? Or is this, is this something that we should leave outside uh, our Bible? The story is really very tragic, as I said. A hundred years plus after God had saved this city, saved Jerusalem from the Assyrians, many people who lived here began to think, we have a lucky rabbit's foot. I don't know if all of you know what that means, but we have some kind of uh, extra grace, or we have a dispensation. God saved Jerusalem once, he will not let it be destroyed again, especially because we have the temple. Surely God will not allow his house to be destroyed. And it was that assumption 
Yes. It was that assumption that uh, people be began uh, to um, believe or they began to internalize. And Judah, the kingdom of Judah, the city of Jerusalem, uh, began to slide into idolatry and immorality and violence and deceit. And if we read the book of Le Leviticus, uh, together with the book of Ezekiel, one thing that we'll discover is that uh, because of certain sins, the land can become morally polluted. And those sins are especially idolatry, yes, immorality, and by the way, I don't know if you've noticed, but idolatry and immorality go together. They're like kissing cousins. They're like ham and cheese or cricket and cucumber sandwiches, yes. Together with bloodshed, murder, and deceit. And in God's word, uh, these sins pollute the land. And these sins will eventually lead to exile. The land will literally, in Leviticus 18, vomit out the inhabitants, yes, will vomit out the inhabitants who practice these detestable things. And so we've come to a place, yes, we've come to a place uh, in the sad history of Judah where the land expels, you might say, the people of uh, Judah and they go into exile to Babylon. Another way of putting it in the book of Ezekiel is it is described in uh, the terms of a marital relationship. It's like a marriage. God says in chapter 16 of Ezekiel, he will say, I have uh, loved, I found you in the wilderness. I loved you. I married you. I was a husband to you. But you, Israel, became some kind of a prostitute and you went after many lovers. Yes? God says, I'm faithful to you. I only have one wife, but you have taken uh, many husbands. You have taken many lovers. And so the situation, you might say, uh, is certainly dire. So the, the land is polluted. There is no repentance. And uh, as a consequence, yes, Jerusalem is destroyed. The people of Israel go into Babylon or go to Babylon uh, and go into exile. Not everybody, but you might say uh, a significant part of the population uh, is taken to what is today Iraq. And there is a crisis. And part of the crisis is that you might say the underpinnings Yes, of, uh, of society, the foundations of the religious life of uh, this community is destroyed. All of a sudden, there's no more monarchy. There's no more king. There's no more independence or semi-independence. Equally, there's no temple. Yes, how are you going to worship God if there's no temple? And not only is there no temple, but the holy city, Jerusalem itself, has been destroyed. And as we read uh, the scripture, 
whether it's the Psalms or Jeremiah or even in Ezekiel itself, people, the people of God who are in exile are full of despair. Yes, they are, they are full of fear. And they ask themselves, what's gonna happen to us? They remember, or they're well aware, that over 100 years earlier, the so-called 10 northern tribes, they're taken away by the Assyrians, and they more or less disappear. A good portion of the nation vanishes almost overnight. So these people in Babylon are asking, what's gonna happen to us? And as I said, there's fear, and there's despair, and there's incredible discouragement. And I'd just like to highlight this, because from our reading, we, um, we read, uh, I don't know if it was clear, in, um, but in the reading we read from, uh, from Ezekiel 37, and there's at least one verse that points this out. God says uh, to, um, to Ezekiel, he said, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They say, meaning the people of Israel are saying, our bones are dried up, our hope is gone, we are cut off. We have no future. We're finished. Yes. We're stuck. And the end is, a, the end is coming, and we have no hope. Now, in all of these situations, in fact, throughout the, the season of Lent, every New Testament, sorry, every Old Testament passage, uh, virtually in which we have read, human beings, the human family has messed up. But God always takes the initiative. He always comes to the rescue. And in the case of Israel being married to God, you would think that God is tired and disgusted and even fed up with Israel. And that ultimately, you have the sense or this feeling, this is going to end in a divorce. God is going to divorce Israel and uh, be finished with Israel because of her unfaithfulness. But actually, God, instead of divorcing Israel, is faithful to Israel and comes uh, and renews the covenant. God himself takes the initiative and he brings renewal. And that's exactly what happens in this passage. God says to Israel, I'm going to come, and even though you are dead, you have no future, you have no hope, what I'm going to do for you is to bring you new life, and I'm going to give you another chance. Now, it'd be very easy to take this passage and say, well, this is about the resurrection. This is about life after death. But it's not about life after death. It's actually about life before death. Because the life that God wants to give Israel, if we read uh, in 36 uh, or 37, the life that God wants to give Israel is that he wants to make Israel holy again. He wants to purify Israel. And he wants to live among them. And he wants to be their God. So it's not about exactly about what happens after death. It's about what happens before death. 
And you might say that Ezekiel 37 and even John 15, sorry, John 11, is about life before death. Yes? So God comes and restores Israel. He renews Israel. He purifies Israel. Yes, and he promises that he will be their God and that he will be intimate. Yes, he will be in their midst. And that will, they will have a relationship like they never, never had before. What does this have to do with John chapter 11? Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. That's a great story. But you know, most of the time, we only read that story well, we may read it at Easter, but you only hear it at funerals. It's a great text for funerals because Jesus says, uh, he says, I am the resurrection, and he says, I am the life. And it's, of course, about Lazarus, Lazarus coming, back to de- from, coming back from the dead. Jesus works this incredible, this incredible miracle. But again, if Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and I am the life, what is he talking about? And is this a text that's useful for us sitting here today in the times in which we live? We live in a time, I think many people uh, would be able to identify with the people of Judah in exile. Yes, disobedience, to God brought death. Disobedience brought destruction. Disobedience brought uh, exile. And there's fear, as we said, and discouragement. There is a, perhaps a sense of fatalism. We're doomed. Uh, there's nothing that uh, can actually save us. And this text should speak to us whether we are in a state of fear or in a state of discouragement, in a state of worry about what's going to happen to us, what's going to happen to our children. Because in the midst of death, Jesus promises not only to be the resurrection, he not only promises life after death, but he promises us life before death. Because when Jesus says, I am the resurrection and I am the life, we should then ask ourselves the question, what does it mean? Yes, what does it mean when Jesus uses the term life? What kind of life is he talking about? And again, most of us, when we hear this, we think, ah, yes, after I die and have a miserable life, I get to go to heaven with Jesus. Well, that is true if we are indeed believers or disciples of Jesus. But there's so much more. Because in John's gospel, yes, in this gospel, what is uh, emphasized is that the life that Jesus talks about, the life that he wants to give us, is actually the life that he shares with the Father. Yes, that relationship that Jesus has with the Father and the Father has with the Son is actually what he wants to share with us. And eternal life isn't something that's going to happen in the future, it will, because eternal life does destroy death. But eternal life is something that happens now. And we have the words of Jesus in John John 17, three, and he gives us a definition of this life, yes? 
He says, Father, the time has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life. Yes, he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Well, what is eternal life? Here's here's how Jesus defines it. Now, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. What is eternal life? It's, It's something that happens in this life. It's something that happens in this present age. And it's knowing God. Yes, it's being in a relationship with God the Father. Yes, and God the Son. Now, the question is, how do we get eternal life? And in part, I think all of us know the answer. Yes, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Yes, that who should ever believe in him will have eternal life. This is uh, something that is uh, well preached in many churches and uh, we can certainly affirm the the preaching of this message. But what does it mean to believe? Because the key key word here is belief. What does it mean to believe so that we can get eternal life? And in, in John's gospel, this word belief in Greek, it's not a noun, it's a verb. It's very dynamic. It moves around, yes? It's not something intellectual. Uh, I, I believe, yes, I, I have some intellectual belief that Jesus is the Son of God. Yes, I believe that he died for me. That's actually not enough because the word actually means in Greek, it means to trust in him, to continually trust in him, to rely upon him, yes, to stay with him, to be connected to him, yes, like branches are connected to a vine, yes, to draw our life actually from him. This is what it means to believe. And it's not something we do once. We can't say I was baptized. I went to First Communion. We can't say I I walked down the aisle and accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior when I was seven years old. I mean, those are all helpful beginnings. But surely the emphasis is, yes, on a continual relationship with him. Are you saying that I have to do this to be saved and go to heaven? I'm saying if we want life, yes, if we want life, if we want life before death, if we want to share in this relationship that the Father has with the Son and the Son has with the Father, and to share it with each other, yes, we must continue trusting. We must continue relying upon him. We must be in a state of Uh, of abiding and abiding always in him. Now, this might be controversial, but that's not the only way we can have life. Yes, it's a way that, it's a way that in Protestant understanding, you might say, we um, have emphasized. But I'd like to also point out to you something else. 
because also in John's gospel, yes, in chapter 14, Jesus also says the following. He says, he says, if you love me, you will obey what I command. Yes, by the way, that's the, the motivation, you might say, for being obedient. It's the motivation is love. It's not the only motivation, but it's the primary motivation. If you love me, you will obey what I command. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor. Right? The spirit of truth. Now I'm going to drop down to verse 23 of chapter, four, 24, chapter 14. Jesus replied, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him, and we will come and make our home with him. Yes? The Father and the Son making their home in us? How does that come about? Not just through believing, but also through obedience. Yes? There's more. There's more. And uh, without having a long theological argument or a theological discussion, something that we can do uh, at a later time, uh, especially amongst uh, our staff and volunteers, I'd like to also remind you of words that perhaps make us uncomfortable or we very easily, easily push aside and excuse away. Yes, in John chapter six, when Jesus is in Capernaum and he's teaching in uh, the synagogue at Capernaum, he says the following. He says, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. Just as the Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, right? Jesus gets this life from the Father, shares it with the Father, then gives it, uh, gives it to us. So the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your forefathers ate manna and died, but he who feeds on this bread will live forever. And this I believe, Yes, it's talking about the sacrament of the Eucharist. This is communion. And here we're not talking about a ritual and we're not talking about magic because whenever we approach the Lord's table, we do so in faith. It's an act of faith. It is an act of obedience. Now, to make our time shorter here, we can ask the question, what is the enemy of eternal life? Yes, or what is the enemy of this life that Jesus indeed wants to give us? Because in John, especially in John's gospel, almost every reference to life uh, is eternal life, even though we don't always have the, um, we, uh, it's not always using the word eternal attached to it. And you might think, ah, the enemy is death. Death is the enemy of life, is it not? Or maybe it's Satan. But it's really no different 
than what happened in ancient Israel. The enemy of life, yes, their enemy was sin. And our enemy is sin as well. And I'd like to read to you from 1 John, because 1 John makes this clear. It says, do not be surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you. We know we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Yes, anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. No murderer has eternal life in him. Yes, this life, this relationship, or this intimate relationship, yes, the blessings and challenges, yes, of living in or having life before death. Again, it's not about just about where you go or where we go after we die. But eternal life is, uh, you might say, is a process or even, even a journey. I'd like to close, yes, with words that harken back uh, to Ezekiel. And these words come to us from 2 Corinthians. It's also a reminder about how we live and the dangers of sin and how sin can destroy uh, our relationship with God. I will end with 2 Corinthians 6 and following, 6 verse 14 and following. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Bial? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and, their, and they will be my people. Therefore, come, come out from, from them and be separate. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that uh, during these difficult times, these times of lockdown, these times of fear, these times of uncertainty, that uh, you will come and bring us hope and remind us every day that in the midst of death, you have given us the precious gift of life, eternal life, eternal life. And we pray that uh, we will not spurn that life, but that uh, we will believe and be obedient, even if we do not understand all that is happening around us. Give us grace and help us. Make us strong and resolute. And finally, we ask for courage. Give us courage in the time in which we live. And we ask these things in order to glorify your name. And 
the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page, on SoundCloud, or by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. You can offer practical support by giving a donation at ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Thank you, and blessings from the City of the King.